the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. My turn? My goodness. How lucky I am. (laughs) Good afternoon to you. Welcome on board Tuesday, the 12th day of July, in case you weren't keeping track, and uh, Craig Roberts, before your shell-like ears on this edition of Lifeline, it's always a privilege to spend some time with you today. We've got much to talk about, so uh, we're not going to get involved in any uh, fancy-dancy set-the-stage. We're just going to dive right in. Um, it's probably of no surprise, as we watched the events unfolding in San Francisco during the uh, the June primary that uh, our now former San Francisco DA, Chesa Boudin, was shown the door in large part because of the very, uh, should we politely put this, lackadaisical manner in which the application of law and uh, cases were brought to prosecution. It seems almost as if based on his background of being raised by uh, adoptive parents who worked in the the, um, legal defense area, uh, for defendants related to folks that uh, they can't afford their own attorneys, uh, that there seemed to be a, a soft spot there. And so as a result, in spite of California law, San Francisco Municipal Code, et cetera, et cetera, quite often it was kind of a pick-and-choose case with the district attorney. And that frustrated many San Franciscans to the point where Chase Boudin was shown the door even as much as his term in office was going to conclude in 2024. Well, if you thought that was a little bit uh, um, disquieting, that you would have a DA sort of pick and choose which laws would be, um, would be applied and which ones would not be, imagine a trend taking place now nationally in the wake of the Roe v. Wade um, being knocked down by the Supreme Court, that now there are groups of attorneys general and DAs across the country that have just sort of decided, yeah, well, we don't agree, and even though our state maybe has passed restrictive abortion laws, we're just going to do what we please. Let's get some more on this story from constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Brad, I suppose at a level we shouldn't be altogether too surprised by this action, but at the same token, I look at it and think to myself, you know, the, the, we, we, we talk about the lack of the rule of law and almost sort of a, a Old West days approach to, um, to application of same. And, uh, boy, this sure seems to be an example here where in spite of a vow once taking office to, um, to uphold the Constitution, be it state or federal, 
Now you've got groups across the country of attorneys generals and DAs and saying, yeah, now we're just going to kind of do what we feel like. I mean, it's, again, I don't think that it's surprising, but there is a level at which it is enormously disappointing. So it's extremely disappointing and chaotic because uh, reportedly there are 90 left-leaning attorney generals and district attorneys, Craig, that since the, the fall of Roe versus Wade recently um, have declared that and pledged that they will not enforce criminal charges related to laws protecting preborn babies. Um, they're going, they said, we're not going to enforce the law. We don't care what the Supreme Court says about the Constitution. Um, we're just going to do our own thing. Uh, follow our own feelings and forget the law. And it is so outrageous. It's such a clear violation of their public trust and their oath of office uh, that uh, it's, it's, it's very alarming. I've never seen this in U.S. history where so many who are pledged to, to enforce the law, that is their job as attorney generals and prosecutors, to enforce the law, to openly declare that they're not going to do it and they're going to violate their oath against the will of the people and, and the voice of their legislatures. You know, what's problematic about this, I mean, certainly disturbing from a pro-life perspective, to be sure, but if you look at the, the broader approach here, where you've got AGs and DAs picking and choosing, I mean, my goodness, how, how quickly does the rule of law and order, quite frankly, in our society begin to collapse, I mean, who's to say that, well, you've got a police officer who says, I realize that there is a posted speed limit of 25 miles an hour when children are present. Somebody was driving 50 miles an hour down the street, but you know, they got a beautiful cherry red Mustang, and I really like the way that car looks, so I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, it's uh, it will use my discretion, I'm not going to hand out a ticket. I mean, if all of a sudden we, we have those who are charged with the responsibility of upholding the law, of carrying out the law, picking and choosing those that they do and don't like, th- this this whole society faces the verge of collapse, or am I exaggerating? No, you're not exaggerating, because a certainty of law, law and justice must be blind. In other words, it must be equally enforced and based upon what it says. If people don't like it, they can challenge it uh, in, a, in a lawsuit to take it to Supreme Court has uh, challenged its constitutionality. Of course, that's what happened with uh, the recent uh, Dodd case, and they declared that Roe versus Wade um, is a mandate that is not supported by the Constitution. And I think the Supreme Court was completely right. So they were two to one on that, uh, six to three, uh, for the most part. And uh, and then at the same time, uh, you know, we're looking at just a, an attitude of disrespect for the legislature. You know, people if they don't like the law. The other thing they can do is they can elect people to office in the state legislatures and Congress that uh, want to adopt laws and statutes that they want. But no, these activist district attorneys and, uh, and, and attorney generals, they want to ignore our Constitution, ignore the, the courts. They want to ignore uh, the voice of the people in terms of the, the, the Democrat, democratic process. Uh, and they just want to do things as they wish. And it's, it's outrageous. Each of them should be impeached by the people, no matter what their perspective is on abortion or the abortion statutes being passed by we, the people, in, in the states across the nation. Um, just for their respect of law and justice and order and non-chaos, uh, 
each of those 90 should be uh, uh, removed from office in the, in the upcoming election. Um, it is an outrageous breach of trust, and it's a terrible decline in America because of, of its, of its uh, attack on our uh, fair and blind judicial system as, we're supposed to have, as we're supposed to have it. Aside from examples of cases where we have a chance at the ballot box to um, to address these matters, as San Franciscans recently had. I mean, the city always has a reputation for being extremely left-leaning, very liberal, very accepting, uh, you know, sort of an anything-goes attitude, and yet even San Franciscans demonstrated that there are limits to their patience. Um, I- I'm wondering, aside from at the ballot box, I mean, who ultimately is responsible for making sure these people do their jobs, and does their oath taken when they're sworn into office to uphold the Constitution of either state or the of the the U.S. Constitution of, of no value anymore. Yeah, that it's it's, it's a real problem now. Uh, you know, these people are generally attorneys, so they can be challenged uh, with the state bar to have their their license removed to practice law. That's one remedy. Of course, then the other remedy I just alluded to it, and that is uh, they can be booted out of office uh, or if, or recalled if people don't want to wait till the next election. They can get petitions and uh, recall some of these people, like. Uh, you know, uh, Gavin Newsom, uh, the district attorney of Los Angeles, it's like it's recalled because so many people in Los Angeles are fed up with his deliberate ignoring of the law at the expense of people being murdered and raped and, and robbed. So at the end of the day, there, the good news is there are remedies. The bad news is we as a society are such that there are 90 attorney generals and prosecutors who felt that they, in some way they could actually get away with uh, not respecting their oath to protect other people and, and respect the law. That is very disturbing, and we need to come down hard and fast as soon as possible uh, to show them that this is not acceptable, not in the United States of America, not with a, a land of the people, not uh, uh, oligarchs who just uh, arbitrarily decided to do what they want once they're attorney general or or prosecutors. And again, I think that listeners really need to grasp the gravity of this, that it's not just a matter of, as Brad Dacus points out, 90 prosecutors, um, the combination of uh, attorneys general and uh, DAs that are sort of arbitrarily on their own whim picking and choosing which laws they will choose to enforce and which ones they won't. But the, the, the door that this opens of going rogue, essentially, and, you know, while sure, you can work to get them recalled and try to gather the signatures, you know, and we can certainly have a special election or, or you know, move on a midterm election as we did in the case of Chesa Boudin in San Francisco. All of that comes at used time and expense to the people of a community, and then meanwhile, the laws are not being upheld. And, you know, if all of a sudden we have... Uh, people that are charged with that responsibility, picking and choosing at whim, as I said before, the, the, the implications of all of this can be absolutely disastrous. And these people need to be reminded that you're, you're elected to enforce the law, not to exercise your opinion. Now, you may have a legal opinion on the matter, but if it's settled law, period, end of story, you don't like it, take it up with Congress, take it up with the Supreme Court, state or federal. It's um, it's pretty disquieting, and as I said in the beginning, and uh, the notion now that they're trying to encourage others 
to follow suit across the country um, is, is very bothersome, given the fact that uh, there's already people from some 29 of the 30 states, uh, 30 states, hello, 29 of the, we've lost 20 states, <laughs> 29 of the 50 states that have said, yeah, we're, we're just not going to enforce aspects of the state law related to um, Roe versus Wade. It's really opens up the door for Wild West all across the country. There's Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. More information online at pji.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, thank you, sir. Welcome back to the program. 20 minutes after the hour, we continue on this Tuesday edition of Lifeline. Well, as seems to be the running theme here over the last many weeks, the uh, the issue of the uh, enormity of the impact of decisions handed down by the Supreme Court as they close their their session here in June is uh, pretty overwhelming to some degrees. And to try to understand how all of this is going to play out in terms of uh, medium range and long term impact. Well, we're going to try to do just that. We'll hit some of the highlights today. This is probably going to be an ongoing primer uh, because there are many ways in which this is poised to impact the lives of literally millions of Americans from concerns over prayer, not necessarily in the classroom, but on public school property to stripping the EPA of the ability, quote-unquote, to um, to engage in um, exercising emissions controls, and, of course, matters related to religious freedom as it comes to um, public tax dollars made available for uh, private education for students that live in areas where there are no, are no other um, school options available to them from a, from a public school standpoint. And, of course, um, the one that seems to be capturing the most attention of recent days, and that is the... Uh, the decision by the Supreme Court in the case of Roe versus Wade. To get some deeper understanding, we're joined by constitutional historian, syndicated talk show host, and best-selling author Bob Zadek, host of the Bob Zadek Show, heard every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. here locally in the San Francisco Bay Area on 860 a.m., The Answer, sister station to KFAX. And Robert, as always, a privilege to have you join us on the program. In in recent memory, has there ever been a time that you recall when seemingly the court has handed down so many critical decisions in in such a short period of time? Uh, I can't. Um, Of course, the Supreme Court seems to have done back-end loading of its decisions, leaving all of its uh, most or many of its most meaningful decisions for the very end of the term, which is kind of more or less their custom, but this was really one after the other, um, and the impact of all of them will be felt really, as you said, over the years to follow. They were many of them were pretty dramatic, and if I can take a ridiculously modest victory lap, it was a good year for libertarians and for uh, conservatives. Um, we, Unlike previous years, when it was a bit disappointing, uh, this year we can walk with our head held high and feel comfortable that it is also our country. 
do you get the sense that there is a a movement back towards um, constitutional originality and 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 less sort of making it up out of out of whole cloth or pieces of cloth and I, and I pose that that question probably most most notably in relationship to Roe versus Wade that that many constitutional scholars, while perhaps not really having a, a dog in the fight, so to speak, in relationship to opining one way or the other on the morality of same, nevertheless looked at something like Roe versus Wade and said it was really a stretch for the high court in 1973 to somehow conclude that out of a right to privacy comes a woman's right to choose. Well, what are your thoughts on, on the court's approach on this and essentially turning it now back finally to the states for decisions? Well, Greg, first a comment on uh, the word you chose as the centerpiece of your comment, which was movement. It's a little hard to uh, describe this as a movement since it's only the majority of in a nine court in a nine justice court so movement kind of presupposes um, involving large uh, numbers of people and this is rather than to say it's a movement what it is is it simply i think is the membership of the current membership of the court is comprised of originalists we'll get back to that in a moment um, rather than in earlier periods when it was less so and sometimes almost not at all so really what has happened is the composition of the court has changed and as a res- and this is the first term in which the effect of that change in composition has really been uh, so profound and it's interesting um, if you think about it probably um, if we are content, if that's not an understatement, in the decisions of the court, the unsung hero is probably uh, Senate President, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Remember, all of this started with his refusal to uh, hold hearings on the Merritt Garland nomination. And that's what started the profound change in the composition of the courts. So uh, he's kind of an unsung hero in it all. Yes, Donald Trump made three key appointments. Uh, I don't know how much credit goes directly to Donald Trump. He relied, apparently, from what one reads, quite heavily upon the guidance of the Federalist Society, a an organization of law professors, law students, and attorneys, basically conservative and a libertarian, uh, and Trump seems to have mostly outsourced that. It's not clear how much was his decision, he's not a lawyer, of course, and how much was simply his relying upon others. It doesn't matter. The result is exactly the same. But the dynamic is kind of interesting and history will give it a better treatment than I just did. But uh, as to whether it's the start of, um, as that last line in Casablanca, the start of a beautiful friendship, i.e. our friendship with the court, Craig, whether this is the start of that, or whether this is um, 
a string of successes which might be changed as the court composition changes, well, we'll have to wait and see on that. So I don't do much of predicting the future. I just would would enjoy the present. I am reasonably content that I'm trying to feel at home again in my country because of recent decisions, um, and I am feeling pretty good about the previous term. Now, as to as to the Dodd decision, which, as you, of course, observed, the Dodd decision reversed uh, Roe versus Wade, uh, a 50-odd-year-old decision. Um, the, the Dobbs decision uh, found uh, or concluded that there is no inherent constitutional right to an abortion in the none in the Constitution. The Supreme Court did not decide that abortions are good or bad or are encouraged or discouraged. It was, as one would expect, agnostic on the act of an abortion. It simply said it is the right to an abortion is not found in the Constitution. And the effect of that, it's quite interesting, uh, many uh, of the more hysterical members of the Senate and the House and those who are uh, opinion makers or would-be opinion makers, they were somewhat irrational and hysterical, complaining with phrases like, it's the end of democracy, uh, as we know it, which is kind of strange because the Dobbs decision was a resounding vote for democracy. And by that I mean it deferred, it took the issue of abortion and it took it away from the unelected judiciary and placed it squarely in the elected state legislators. So the Supreme Court, as a in, in ruling on constitutional issues, it simply said, it's not our job. It belongs in the states. Um, and they are 100% right, in my opinion, on that. So it said to the Democratic branches, those branches that are elected by us, the executive and the legislative, it says, you figure it out. And whatever you do, it is fine with us from the standpoint of the Constitution. So have at it. Uh, and so now it is left to the Democratic branches. And it did not deny, per se, anybody the right to an abortion. It just says if you have the right, it's because you have the right in the state where you live. And that's all that it decided. So it did not voice an opinion on abortion per se. It did not deny or encourage anybody to have an abortion. There is a perhaps broader question behind all of this that I want to dive into um, with some depth, Bob, when we come back after the break. And that, and that is the whole debate, so to speak, the question over enumerated versus unenumerated rights. Uh, there are times, most certainly, where 
for the sake of what was going on at the time in the um, mid to later 1700s that certain things perhaps could not have been foreseen. And so, therefore, the Constitution is silent on them. And yet, down through the years, we've come to perhaps change our opinions and hopefully in in a, in a, a positive direction forward on matters such as, uh, for example, uh, can members of the Caucasian race marry members of the African-American? race and and certainly a, a right that specifically as such unenumerated in the constitution yet i think today uh, most reasonable people would say yeah that's 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 certainly a fair and reasonable um, position to take but it raises some questions now given the fact that the court has come in and said yeah this is really up to the states and the court in 1973 kind of created a there when there was no there to begin with um, whether or not this is going to potentially um, create issues related to other unenumerated rights as they stand Bob Zadek with us tonight. He is a constitutional historian, syndicated talk show host, best-selling author. You can check him out every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. at 8.60 a.m. The Answer. And, of course, you can do that right now online by going to bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. There you'll find all kinds of resources available to you, including podcasts of past shows, information about recent guests, and as well as copies of his books available. Bob Zadek. Com. A timeout back with more of our discussion as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. A visit today with constitutional historian, syndicated talk show host, and best selling author Bob Zadek of The Bob Zadek Show online at bobzadek.com. B O B Z A D E K.com. We've been talking about this um, large list of pretty significant decisions handed down by the high court just at the conclusion of uh, this court term. And um, it's got a lot of us trying to understand the significance behind these decisions, part of which, of course, will have to be sort of uh, you know, peeled back like the proverbial onion and unpacked for undoubtedly some time to come. But as we seek to try to understand some of the more significant aspects of the impact of these decisions, one thing that has been brought up a couple of times in relationship to the uh, vacating of Roe versus Wade Bob, is the entire issue of the court's stand on enumerated versus unenumerated rights, meaning in more layman's terms, rights that are specifically called out, like um, the, the First Amendment rights to, uh, uh, to be able to um, um, enjoy the press, things of that sort, versus places where the Constitution is in specific silent, and yet perhaps maybe it, it, it infers certain rights. Uh, how problematic, if at all, is this decision since it seemed as if um, this um, the right to an abortion in 73 that was kind of, again, in my opinion, cherry-picked out of a right to privacy, certainly an unenumerated right. Now the court has said, uh-uh, that, that's, uh, that was a mistake in 73. We're going to let the states um, make a decision for their own on this very topic. But does this potentially open up a Pandora's box of other issues uh, across the country, either at the federal or at state level, where it could be argued now, hey, uh, this is a right that's been granted somehow that has not been codified in law or in a constitutional amendment and therefore is uh, facing the potential risk of being challenged. 
Well, uh, it's interesting, your choice of metaphors. You pick Pandora's box. Usually when that phrase is used, it's used as a bunch of somewhat unpleasant or inconvenient things in the box. I don't know what Pandora had in mind, but that's what it conjures up. Um, And somehow the fact that the court might find other rights um, in Pandora's box, rights are not inconvenient. They are kind of nice to have, since rights means the government cannot take them away from you. So, uh, but putting aside my passing comment on the metaphor, this is not about metaphors, this is about the Constitution, unenumerated and enumerated rights is often either not understood or misunderstood. Uh, the the phrase, of course, refers to, uh, as a starting point, the Ninth Amendment. The Bill of Rights is, of course, the first ten amendments to the Constitution, and to think of them as being amendments, well, yes, they are technically, and the reason I say technically is when the states were ratifying the Constitution, many of the states, Virginia, New York, and other states, were uncomfortable in that they feared that the Constitution the founders gave to the country vested too much power in the federal government. Um, And so many of the states were loath to, or the voters were loath to ratify this uh, creation of a new institution, the federal government, which had, in their view, too much power. Well, so it was understood there was an unwritten but clearly understood agreement between various ratifying constitutions at the state level, um, ratifying conventions at the state level, and Madison and others, that as soon as it was ratified, the federal government newly created would amend the Constitution and add specific rights that the federal government lacked the power to infringe upon. And that was understood, and in the first meeting of the House of Representatives, James Madison, who was then a representative, um, true to his word, he presented the Bill of Rights, uh, which was an amendment to the Constitution, which was promised to the ratifying conventions. The, The original Bill of Rights had about, as I recall, in the 20s. There were lots and lots and lots of amendments of rights that were enumerated, and it was too long and not useful and sometimes not well done, and it was all boiled down to basically eight amendments that conferred rights to the people, which we all know, we all have learned in civics and hopefully have not forgotten. The Ninth Amendment, after eight amendments that basically gave us citizens protections from the federal government, the Ninth Amendment was enacted, and that says the fact that certain rights are not listed in the Bill of Rights is not to be taken to mean that you don't have those rights. It was just an acknowledgement to the obvious. There are lots and lots of rights that, of course, citizens have and cannot be taken away, 
but they're too numerous to mention. And I'll give a few examples just to show how obvious this all is. So the Ninth Amendment says there are certain enumerated, listed in the First Eight Amendments, certain rights that are enumerated. But that doesn't mean there aren't lots others, and it's simply left to the court to determine what those rights are. Now, just to give a few examples, so it's not an abstract concept, we all know that inherent in our humanness is the right to travel. We take it for granted. Of course we can travel wherever the heck we want. Um, we can go from our state to another state. Well, that's nowhere in the Constitution. But of course it is an unenumerated right, and the right to travel is every bit as strong as the right to speak freely. Another example, the right to raise our children the way we wish. We take that for granted. But can a state, can a state or the federal government, by statute, say, in raising your child, you have to teach them this or you cannot teach them that? That would be profoundly offensive, and of course it would violate an unenumerated right to raise our children. And there are countless others. So that's the distinction between enumerated rights listed in the first eight amendments and unenumerated rights that are just as strong but just not listed, and the unenumerated rights are for the court to decide. Now, lest that seem like a blank check, Originalists, and Craig, you mentioned that in your introduction to tonight's show, an originalist view of the Constitution, and most of the sitting justices now are self-identified originalists, they say, no, we just can't find rights that we make up in the air. There is a rule, and the rule is the unenumerated rights are rights which were by dint of long-standing tradition, rights that everybody understood they had. So the Supreme Court, in looking, in determining whether we have a right to privacy, to pick an example, they look back at the founding era and they try to determine as best they can whether these rights were rooted in American political tradition at the time the Constitution was written, and if they are, those rights get included as unenumerated rights. So it's by no means a blank check. There are rules, at least if you're an originalist. And that's the way the concept of enumerated and unenumerated rights is presently handled in the court. Bob Zadek with us tonight, unpacking some of the the impact of the high court's decisions toward the end of their session here in June. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our discussion as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Bob Zadek is with us tonight. His program, by the way, The Bob Zadek Show, can be heard here in the San Francisco Bay region 
Every Sunday morning at 8 a.m., where Bob dives into these issues and many more with the greater detail and a whole range of issues related to uh, constitutional matters of concern, to what's going on in the world of politics and uh, even the economy. So check him out online at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com, and tune in Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock, for The Bob Zadek Show, America's longest-running libertarian talk show. And, uh, Bob, as we um, wind down our visit together, uh, we, we've barely done justice, I realize, with limitations of time to try to gain some understanding here. So I want to kind of come full circle in terms of looking at the number of key decisions handed down by the court. And maybe this is an unfair question, but I'll, I'll, I'll pose it anyway. Of all of these decisions related to, for example, um, kind of pulling in the reins on the EPA related to uh, a case in West Virginia, to the SCOTUS decision related Roe versus Wade, uh, to other matters, including that of the ability of a football coach to be able to have prayer on a football field on public property prior to or just after a high school football game, and on and on the list goes, of course. Any of these stick out in your mind as having perhaps the the greatest potential impact, or are they all about the same? No. Well, uh, of course, as you introduced, uh, it's so unfair that I'm one of the world's greatest victims having to answer that question, (laughs) but I I will carry that badge proudly, and my sort of top, top tier is the EPA decision, which is West Virginia versus the EPA, because um, I have particular animus towards the administrative state, which is that massive, unelected bureaucracy that exercises so much power over us, um, and they never were elected, and there's very little control over them. So the um, in the West Virginia versus EPA decision, the Supreme Court, and I'm just going to summarize it only in a couple of, one or two sentences, the, the issue was, does the Supreme Court have the power under the uh, broad scope of the Clean Air Act to limit uh, carbon emissions throughout uh, the entire uh, economic system. It has a profound effect. And the question was, where does that power come from? Well, it comes from a vaguely worded statute written in the 1970s, as I recall. And this, the EPA just seized upon a very general provision, and they gave bestowed upon themselves enormous power over the economy. And all the Supreme Court did was say, Exercising of that power is within the province of the federal government, but not within the power of the EPA. It is too important, and therefore, if Congress wants to affect huge swaths of the economy in this profound way, it may do so. But Congress, you do it, so you take the political heat if you're wrong. You can't hide behind an administrative agency. So that decision, um, and it's going to have broad effect upon the whole administrative state, it takes power away from unelected bureaucrats who are uh, living in their own world, and it 
it retains the power in the federal government, but only puts it in the political branch, the uh, legislature, and it says, you take, you take a vote, you do what you want, but do not hide behind the administrative agencies. And I like that because it, it, makes, it makes members of Congress do their job in public and take the heat if they vote for unpopular decisions. It is a very pro-small-D Democratic decision, and it's one of my favorites. And this indeed may have the potential, as you look at agencies all across the federal government, uh, that this might be a day of reckoning for, because as you aptly point out, Congress creates the agency, but then the agency turns around and creates the rules, uh, largely held to zero account, and then by default, the rules handed down by these unelected bureaucrats become the quote-unquote law, and there's been no system of checks and balances as delineated in the manner in which law is supposed to be passed. It's largely been absent from so many of these agencies, and, and whether you want to talk about the FAA, the FCC, uh, the EPA, you know, this And sort the of, SEC, Craig, the SEC uh, got slapped down as well. Um, uh, and when you mentioned checks and balances, Craig, you nailed it because Madison observed that when the power of the judicial, executive, and legislative vests in one group of people, as Madison put it, that is the very definition of tyranny. And agencies like the EPA and the SEC have their own judges their own SWAT teams, so they are the executive, the legislative, and the judicial all wrapped up in one. And thank heaven the Supreme Court has found the will to start to look under the hood of the administrative agencies. We are all more free as a result. Yeah, and you know, if you think back historically, that notion of sort of, um, how should we put it, judge, jury, and execution are all wrapped up in one was a major motivation (laughs) to break from the mother country of England in the first place and to see that we've kind of in in recent decades sort of cobbled, if not in the letter, at least the spirit of, of such matters, all of that back together again has been extremely troubling. Anybody that's ever had to deal with these nameless, faceless organizations, uh, um, that again, you know, run the the gambit of alphabet soup of of letters, and yet seem to have zero accountability to even the very body that created them in the first place, namely the United States Congress. And to know that now, at last, the Supreme Court is taking note of all of this. Hopefully, many of these agencies will begin to do the same. Bob Zadek, check him out Sunday mornings at eight o'clock on eight sixty a.m. The Answer, sister station to KFAX, and of course, more information online about Bob Good's work at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Resources there, including past podcast information about recent guests and other news stories as well of great interest. So check him out, bobzadek.com. Bob, as always, appreciate the time and the insights. Six o'clock from KFAX. Let's get you a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and we'll be back with more as Lifeline continues. 
Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.